All right, we're going to pivot now and we are going to uh, now uh, have an opportunity to talk about some of the data um, for HIV prevention with long acting agents. And I just wanna parenthetically say that to people who had questions um, about treatment that we didn't get to, we apologize. We'll try and get you answers as much as we can um, before the end of the, the webinar to your questions, um, uh, but uh, apologies if we didn't get to yours. We're really delighted um, uh, now to have Dr. Colleen Kelly, um, who uh, is uh, from uh, the Emory University uh, Division of Infectious Disease. Uh, she uh, is a multifaceted and multi-talented uh, clinician investigator um, uh, at Emory, where she works uh, as an outpatient clinician in the Grady Infectious Disease Program. And, and, and sees inpatients on the infectious disease consult service there, as well as in the special immunology service at Grady at Emory. Um, her research focus is on biomedical HIV prevention, uh, interventions including pre and post exposure prophylaxis, as well as vaccinology. She also conducts translational immunology studies on HIV susceptibility in men who have sex with men to better understand rectal transmission biology. Um, she works closely with the HIV prevention trials network and the HIV vaccine trials network at the Hope Clinic um, in Atlanta. And she also has close collaborations in the School of Public Health on several HIV prevention studies, including PrEP implementation um, in the Atlanta area. We're really delighted to have Dr. Kelly here. And uh, Colleen, the floor is yours. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, um, Dr. Landovitz. It's um, really uh, glad to be here. And, and I'm glad to have the uh, world expert in long acting prevention to, to lean on if, if there's any questions. Um, so I will go ahead and get started. Um, these are uh, my disclosures here. Um, so the learning objectives today is we're gonna examine very closely efficacy and updated efficacy of long acting cabotegravir for HIV prevention. We're going to look at HIV acquisitions and diagnostic delays that have occurred in uh, CAB LA users. Uh, and finally, going to review the updated clinical practice guidelines for PrEP um, as they've changed uh, with the introduction of long-acting cabotegravir. Um, so first to get started um, with the first audience response question, number uh, one, use of CAB-LA for prevention uh, has been shown to be superior to oral TDF-FTC in all populations at risk of HIV. So um, go ahead and uh, put your answers in. And whenever we're ready to share the results, go ahead. Okay, so about 50-50, uh, true or false? And so on the next slide, I will give you the answer. That answer is actually false. Um, so in the HIV prevention landscape, we are on the precipice of having so many options uh, for people who can pick and choose what's going to work best uh, for, their, uh, for their individual sex lives, for their individual behaviors, for their individual schedules. Uh, and this is really exciting. Uh, in 2005, we first got post-exposure prophylaxis, and that was all we really had um, from a biomedical perspective. And then oral TDF-FTC came uh, on a daily basis in 2012. In 
2019, we got on-demand uh, 211 uh, PrEP, as well as FTAF, uh, tenofovir alafenamide, uh, for people with uh, uh, kidney disease. Uh, we also, uh, for cis women, are awaiting uh, implementation of the depivirine ring. And then 2021 brought us injectable Cabalet, which we're going to go over um, in, in greater detail today. The thing to note is that with choice becomes complications, right? Each of these interventions have been studied uh, in certain populations and not all of them are appropriate for all people. So uh, to answer the audience response question on the last slide, injectable cabotegravir is only appropriate for people at sexual risk because it's not yet been studied in people who inject drugs. Theoretically and hypothetically, it should work in people who inject drugs, but we just don't have any data as of yet. And so it's not yet been recommended. Uh, and just to just to remind everyone, this is what the prevention pipeline looks like. It is a really exciting time to be working uh, in HIV prevention because there are so many options that are coming to our patients, uh, which is really going to help expand uh, possibilities for for everyone. And so if we look closely, there's diaphragms, enemas, more injections, more long-acting injections, implants, patches, pills, vaginal films and gels, et cetera. Uh, and so we are uh, looking at a future uh, of many options for people, many choices for people to be able to select the product that works the best for them. And that is really exciting when we think about reducing new infections. Uh, so just to review in detail, uh, the, the clinical trials that brought us long-acting Cabotec River PrEP, these were done by the HIV Prevention Trials Network, 083 and 084. Uh, and so I'm going to go over these very briefly because I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the overarching results. Uh, so just to remind everyone, uh, the design of HPTN 083, which was men who have sex with men and transgender women, uh, people will randomize to receive either injectable cabotegravir every two months or oral TDF FTC after an oral lead-in period. Uh, and uh, that uh, was continued uh, until the DSMB stopped the study early, uh, and we'll go over those results in just a second, uh, at which point in time everyone uh, uh, to cover people um, who had injectable cabotegravir, uh, it was recommended that they uh, receive oral TDF-FTC for up to a year after uh, their last injection. Uh, once the uh, DSMB results were released, however, the study rolled over into an open label extension where for about a year, uh, people could choose whether they wanted to remain on injectable cavitegravir or switch back to oral TDF FTC. Uh, and then finally, we are now currently in the study in open label extension with cavitegravir injections only that are being delivered uh, through the study. So uh, from the uh, seminal results uh, in New England and Journal uh, of Medicine, this was the initial efficacy results from when the DSMB uh, first uh, stopped the study. And what we saw was superiority uh, of cabotegravir versus oral TDF-FTC on a daily basis. And that was really related um, to uh, lower adherence to oral TDF-FTC than to injectable cabotegravir, which is really, really important. Uh, the hazard ratio showed a 66% reduction in HIV incidence in the cabotegravir arm, which was just incredible. 84% of people have injection site reactions uh, in the clinical trials uh, cabotegravir, and that's for MSM and transgender women. I'm going to show you slightly different results for the trials in cis women. There were some small differences in weight gain uh, to be noted, uh, but nothing uh, significant in lipids. And we're going to talk a lot today about integrase resistance. 
uh, and I'll touch on it briefly in this talk, but Dr. Aaron, who follows me, will talk uh, more extensively about integrase resistance. Uh, and that was seen in breakthrough infections or people who acquired uh, HIV while getting uh, cabotegravir. Uh, there was also a uh, breakthrough or people who that acquired HIV with uh, oral TDF FTC, and that happened twice uh, in that arm. Uh, and that's also something that's uh, important to note. So just last week um, uh, in Lancet ID, the one-year unblinded analysis follow-up was just published uh, by Dr. Landivis and colleagues. Uh, and so this was the period where people could choose, it was open label, people could choose to remain on injectable cabotegravir or stay on oral TDF FTC uh, while they were waiting uh, open label extension of uh, for everyone to be able to get injections. Uh, and that confirmed the hazard ratio of a 66% reduction uh, in injectable so after the unblinded phase, still with a 66% reject, uh, reduction in incidence of CAB compared to oral TDF-FTC, which is really just incredible to think about. Oral TDF-FTC, such a highly effective and amazing intervention, and cabotegravir even improves upon that. Uh, just to review very briefly those differences in weight change, uh, as well as some differences in bone mineral density. So you'll see here on the left, the panel that shows the overall difference uh, in, in weight change in the cabotegravir versus TDF-FTC arm. And you'll see that the weight differences actually occurred very early in the study, before week 40. And that was attributable to a slight decline in weight in the TDF-FTC group. So as we're learning more about tenofovir diisoproxyl fumarate uh, and its associations with weight loss, um, rather than uh, cabotegravir actually being uh, uh, causing weight gain, uh, is the current uh, hypothesis around that. So very, very small differences seen very early. Also, as you might expect, there were some declines in bone marrow density seen in the tenofovir emtricitabine arm, uh, while there were no declines seen in the cabotegravir arm. Uh, so now let's review HPTN084, HPTN which looked at in same uh, study design, and this occurred in cis women, uh, majority in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and this is important because it gives us additional data on efficacy of cabotegravir, but also as well as uh, adverse events. And so what was really incredible for cisgender women who uh, historically in HIV prevention trials do not always show efficacy uh, uh, in those clinical trials uh, due primarily to adherence. Uh, this really was an astounding result, an 88% reduction in HIV incidence in the cabotegravir arm compared to the oral TDF-FTC arm. Again, daily uh, uh, TDF-FTC has been problematic uh, for cisgender women in sub-Saharan Africa. Daily adherence has just been challenging. And again, 42% with detectable drug levels showed that, again, it was challenging in this clinical trial setting. But adherence to injectable cabotegravir was much better. You'll see that there were lower injection site reactions uh, in this study compared to HPTN083, and that's something of interest uh, uh, to compare. Again, there were small differences in weight gain seen in this study, uh, similar to HPTN083. And really the most uh, important data aside from efficacy that we'll get from HPTN084 is safety in pregnancy. So in the initial results, uh, the top line results that were, were uh, reported, there had been 49 confirmed pregnancy and no anomalies, no congenital anomalies had yet been reported. Since that time, of course, the study uh, has been following uh, incident pregnancies uh, in order to report those outcomes. And two updates just to show you on the left, one reported, um, at R4P, and then another uh, that is a, a follow-up from the HPTN show that 
many, many more pregnancies have occurred. Uh, and uh, to date in the open label extension, up to 268 pregnancies and likely more by now, I'm sure, uh, are being followed uh, for outcomes. And so far there is no signal of congenital abnormalities, which is really, really important as we think about expanding uh, this important prevention intervention for cisgender women. So let's uh, shift gears just a little bit and talk about the people that are very rarely acquiring HIV uh, on injectable cabotegravir. This is such an important intervention. It is really uh, highly, highly effective, even more so than the highly effective oral TDF FTC, but occasionally HIV infections or acquisitions are occurring. And so when are these acquisitions occurring? Uh, and this is important when we think about the pretest question that you all answered around this. It's important to understand that uh, so we can be mindful of this and we can watch out for it uh, in our clinics. So some people in the studies uh, are uh, acquire HIV at baseline, meaning they were HIV positive at the time the injectable cabotegravir was started. Others, and this is the majority of cases, actually acquire HIV long after they've received their last cabotegravir injection. For more than six months after the last cabotegravir injection is when the majority of cases are actually occurring. A small number of cases have occurred in oral phase lead-ins, as well as a very small number that have occurred with on-time injections. So people um, that uh, are getting those uh, two monthly injections as scheduled, uh, a small number of infections have occurred. Delayed infections um, uh, have also been a very small number of uh, uh, HIV acquisitions. Uh, you can see those are uh, delayed, but less than six months, which is the, the top category of HIV acquisitions that occur. And then finally, also uh, remembering when restarting uh, PrEP, and this is true for oral or injectable, we need to be sure the HIV acquisition uh, hasn't uh, occurred in the timing of, of lapse from PrEP. And there have been a couple of cases when cabotegravir was restarted uh, more than six months after the last uh, uh, injection where HIV was, uh, was already present and cabotegravir was restarted. So really, really important to note that if we include those uh, last two there on the bottom where cabotegravir was restarted more than six months uh, after the last injection, plus the six, the uh, category B, where uh, HIV acquisition occurred more than six months after the last injection, that's really where we're seeing the majority of, of, of cabotegravir seroconversions. So really just to hammer home, people getting on-time injections or even people getting delayed injections, HIV seroconversion is extremely rare. We're seeing most of the HIV seroconversions long after uh, the last cabotegravir injection was given, so more than six months. And why is this important? And I think we all have probably heard and maybe have even seen in some instances, pre-exposure prophylaxis will sometimes delay HIV diagnostic seroconversion with standard tests. Uh, and this was really um, highlighted nicely in this JID paper from 2021. And I remember when I first read this paper, it was really just mind blowing because I love HIV diagnostics. And when I saw this test, um, uh, variability in test results that was occurring over very small periods of time in people who are on injectable cabotegravir. It's really just fascinating and very confusing and very hard to, to dissect. Uh, and so I, I recommend people, if they haven't spent uh, much time with these graphs, really looking at, at what was happening with viral load, with antigen antibody positivity, um, as well as confirmatory testing over time in people who acquired HIV while using long-acting cabotegravir for prevention. 
So in the trial, in this initial paper is from 2021, and we have more data since then, there was evidence of delayed detection that occurred in all four of the baseline HIV positive cases, as well as seven of 12 incident cases. There was also delayed detection that occurred in the oral TDF FTC arm in about seven of 39 incidence cases. In almost all cases, if you included viral load testing uh, in your HIV diagnostic algorithm, it would have captured those cases and not delayed the, the uh, recognition, the clinical recognition of uh, HIV infection. It is really important to note though, that the delayed detection of, uh, of HIV in people with CAB-LA is much longer uh, than that in people who use oral TDF-FTC on a median of about three months uh, before the HIV diagnostic diagnosis is actually detected. Whereas TDF-FTC is, is much shorter and really begs the question uh, that we'll talk about a little bit more about viral load monitoring. The thing that I just find so fascinating is this assay reversion. So you'll see people that have a positive antigen antibody, then negative, same thing with viral load, positive to negative, then positive, positive to negative. This is really just fascinating as we think about what's happening between the virus and the host and the drug uh, and people who are acquiring HIV, but it does make it difficult clinically to confirm the diagnosis. So uh, when this was realized, uh, the HBTN-083 study changed its follow-up testing algorithm. So in the initial unblinded period, we were using FDA rapid tests um, as well as uh, antigen antibody tests, uh, something similar to a fourth generation uh, in almost all cases. But once it was recognized that these diagnostic delays were occurring, the, an HIV viral load was incorporated into all follow-up uh, visits. And so ongoing studies are occurring to understand um, uh, whether this HIV viral load uh, will uh, assist us in diagnosing HIV in people who are seroconverting on cabotegravir and should it be implemented on a wide basis. But uh, the CDC kind of beat, uh, beat uh, the study to the punch and incorporated uh, this into their clinical practice guidelines. So in 2021, we got an update to the CDC clinical practice guidelines. And just to mention, one of the most important things I take home from these uh, guidelines is in who should get PrEP. And the CDC shifted uh, gears a little bit and said that all people who desire PrEP should be offered PrEP. So this is really, really important. We no longer need to assess someone's risk and determine whether someone is high risk or not. Uh, we should certainly talk to people about their behaviors and counsel them on, on, on their behaviors. But if someone, who want, if someone wants PrEP, we should be offering PrEP. And this is really, really important. The other change to these practice guidelines was an HIV RNA assay was incorporated into routine oral and injectable PrEP follow-up visits. I think some of us were a little bit surprised at the incorporation into the oral uh, follow-up. And uh, I should note that the IASUSA guidelines with sponsor of this talk today do not recommend uh, viral load monitoring for oral PrEP. And the WHO also states that viral load uh, uh, monitoring is optional. But what this has created is a little bit of uh, complexities when we think about uh, follow-up uh, in implementing PrEP in our clinics. So I think everyone was very used to the three-monthly follow-up that we had for oral TDF-FTC. Our, our, our clinic protocols were in place and, and people were uh, routinely coming in every three months. And so when we add injectable cabotegravir uh, to the mix, we see that things get a lot more complicated. We're now seeing people every two months after a, a one monthly uh, injection for their loading dose, uh, every two months for those injections, as well as antigen antibody testing and HIV RNA testing. And then of course we need to keep up with STI screening, hopefully on at least on a quarterly basis. And so things, as I said, are getting just a bit more 
complicated as we think about um, implementing additional choice into our prevention options. And I look forward to the day when things get even more complicated, but we need to uh, at least be mindful of this and think about very carefully about how we can implement in our clinics. So I just wanted to briefly review that viral load monitoring. So now recommended by CDC and for oral and injectable, although not by IAS USA. And I think it's really important to think about the pros and the cons of this monitoring. And I would include both uh, injectable and oral prep as we think about these. Obviously, if we implement um, viral load monitoring, it allows us to make the earliest possible HIV diagnosis. It allows us to initiate ART really early, which is helpful, we think, for long-term inflammation and size of the reservoir. And it may actually present, prevent drug resistance and preserve that integrase inhibitor class for people on CAB-LA. And we do have some data to support that that we'll talk about a little bit later. But I also think a lot about the cons. Um, I think there's a lot of, of, of takeaways that we should be um, that we should be worrying about. Uh, NAT testing is high cost and not always available, especially in community-based settings. Uh, some uh, are not approved for diagnostics, although those uh, options are increasing as well. We have very limited point of care options uh, and especially point of care tests cannot get down to those very, very low sensitivity that we're going to need for people on CAB-LA. I worry a lot about over-medicalization of important public health interventions, as well as inequities. Uh, if we make things too restricted for people, we are going to worsen inequities in PrEP access. And we know that that is a big driver of the current uh, state of the epidemic is inequities of access to interventions. Um, but that's not to say that diagnosis of HIV in the setting of PrEP, and I think less so in the setting of oral PrEP and more so in long-acting PrEP, often requires expert consultation. These cases can be very, very confusing um, to work out, and they're certainly not cleared at the outset uh, what the answers are. Um, so... When uh, a few years ago, uh, CDC gave us a few options when we have ambiguous HIV test results in the setting of, uh, of PrEP, what we might do. We might continue the PrEP and repeat our HIV diagnostics. And of course, the con or the downside of this is that we might uh, be brewing HIV drug resistance. We could discontinue the PrEP and repeat our diagnostics, but that leaves someone who might be HIV negative at risk of ongoing HIV exposure without their prevention intervention in place. Or finally, we could initiate fully suppressive ART for HIV treatment. And this may not be necessary. Uh, the takeaway from that is it may not be necessary and you may not know when you can stop it in the future uh, to actually figure out whether the person needs fully suppressive ART. Um, I'll say that when you add long-acting uh, PrEP uh, to, the, to the mix, you're essentially removing option two because there's no way to take away the PrEP. It's still there. Uh, the long-acting uh, injectable stays around for such a long time. So you're really in this one versus three category. Are you going to just keep repeating diagnostics until you can figure this out? Or are you going to initiate ART, suppressive ART, uh, with generally three drugs uh, for, uh, uh, for full HIV treatment. I will say in my experience, I usually recommend this based on whether I have an, an increasing suspicion of true HIV infection based on all the testing results to date, based on the, the patient history, uh, and based on any other clinical things that are going on with the patient to determine which of these to do. 
So what else have we learned from the uh, from the data so far? What else has the HPTN 083 study learned? And we're going to talk a little bit about the Levi syndrome, the PK tail, which I think everyone in the world uh, talked about uh, and still talks about uh, uh, with long-acting injectables is, oh my goodness, the PK tail, what is that going to do to us? Uh, also about PrEP in the real world and Cab LA in the real world. And I really want to end by thinking a little bit about equity. Uh, and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit more. Uh, so first, the Levi syndrome. This was uh, presented by Sue Eshelman at Croy uh, earlier this year. Levi syndrome stands for long-acting early viral inhibition. And really what this is, is in contrast to people who acquire HIV uh, without antiretrovirals on board, so without long-acting uh, CAB on board, uh, it really contrasts to the clinical syndrome that we see with, that we know as acute HIV infection. And so what we get is infection during PrEP um, uh, and basically smoldering viral load, very uh, low symptoms, and then really difficulties uh, in our standard assays detecting HIV, such that a, a sensitive RNA assay is often necessary uh, to detect the virus. It can take months, uh, as I said, a median of three months uh, until the HIV diagnosis can be uh, confirmed. And so this is kind of a, a, a long-term smoldering type condition. Uh, transmission uh, during this period is extremely unlikely. We learned also from the summer that people with a viral load less than 1,000 tend not to transmit um, HIV. And so uh, in general, the Levi syndrome occurs at viral loads much lower than that. And so we don't worry too much about transmission in this setting. But drug resistance, certainly that's something that we are concerned a lot about and we'll hear talk, as I said, from Dr. Aaron next. Uh, so here is my next audience response question. Based on the current understanding, people in the CAB LA PK tail are at highest risk of HIV drug resistance when acquisition occurs. Please select true or false. It's people in the PK tail that are at highest risk of HIV drug resistance. Okay, we can show the results when we have it. All right, true. Uh, the audience thinks 75% of the time it's people in the PK tail that are highest risk of HIV drug resistance. So I think that that is exactly what we were all very concerned about was this PK tail. And what I can tell you is that that is where, in general, when we think about HIV and we think about HIV replication in our treatment paradigm, that is where we worry about this zone of resistance. So the last dose um, uh, drug levels decline until they decline to such, uh, such a point where it does not inhibit full viral replication. And it's that period of time where oral PrEP coverage is re recommended for at least a year with ongoing testing. Um, however, what I can tell you is the HPTN 083 data have been very reassuring about that PK tail. I'm not going to go into great detail about these resistance mutations. I'll leave that to Dr. Aaron. But what I want you to concentrate on is what's in this red box down here. These are HIV infections that occurred with either 10 week delays or more than six months of HIV, uh, of six months since the last injection. And what you can see in these almost 20 infections is that is not where the resistance is. Is occurring. Really, the HIV resistance is occurring either when the drug is initiated with unrecognized HIV infection or the open label extension or someone who has a true breakthrough infection with on-time injections. So the PK tail to date is looking very reassuring from a drug resistance uh, standpoint. So that the answer to that question is actually false. 
so again, uh, viral load monitoring, we learned more data uh, from the HPTN 083 study that looked retrospectively at those HIV acquisitions and looked at if the viral load had been tested and it was shown, shown to be positive, at the time of HIV acquisition, would that have detected the resistance or would that have prevented the resistance mutation from being acquired? Essentially, when did the resistance mutation occur? Did it occur at the time of acquisition or was it? did it occur later on? And in this case, the integrase inhibitor uh, resistance mutations in this very low, small number of cases, um, actually seven total, showed that um, the integrase mutations came later such that if the um, viral load uh, uh, test was used at the time of acquisition, um, it may have prevented uh, the subsequent and, and suppressive ART was started. It could have potentially prevented uh, future uh, resistance from acquiring. So real world experience, we don't have much yet. Um, and so this is from CROI this year. This is the most up-to-date data that I've seen so far. We have nearly 400,000 people that are utilizing oral prep uh, in the United States, but less than 3,000 on injectable CabLA-Tarugir. So I would have liked to tell you that there's a lot more experience uh, with CabLA for prep, but we're just not there yet. It is really in its infancy uh, in the US. And so we are waiting, uh, uh, um, um, very anxiously to see more data on the rollout of uh, injectable cabotegravir for PrEP. We have seen one uh, acquisition, and I think Dr. Hasra will be presenting later this afternoon and likely be discussing this uh, infection. This was one of those breakthrough infections that occurred in someone who was receiving on-time injections uh, and did acquire HIV despite those on-time injections. Also, similar to the clinical trial, experienced the assay reversion, where positive and negative either antigen antibody or viral load tests were seen. Uh, because the, uh, because the uh, clinicians were using uh, viral load monitoring, they did detect it as early as possible uh, at the time of the second uh, injectable cabotegravir uh, 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 injection. So last, I just want to close when we think a little bit about equity. We know that some populations uh, are not uh, uh, are not the greatest T oral TDF, daily oral TDF FTC candidates because of, of less adherence or troubles with adherence. And we've seen this, and I've already told you about cis women, but we've also seen this for uh, Black men who have sex with men, transgender populations. And also when we think about equity, it's also important to think about global access. These expensive medications need to be available to all those who need them. Uh, so CAB-LA efficacy among Black MSM was presented by Hyman Scott at Croy uh, this year. And I was really just astounded to see uh, these results that in the US, and this was a pre-specified analysis, the reduction uh, in uh, uh, HIV incidence was 72% um, uh, among Black MSM and transgender women as compared to non-Black MSM and transgender women, or the reduction in HIV incidence, while certainly there did not reach statistical significance significance. So all of the statistical significance in the U.S. population was driven by U.S. Black MSM and transgender women. And this was related to, to ease of adherence. So uh, adhering to oral TDF-FTC was uh, more challenging in Black MSM and transgender women. And while adherence to cabotegravir was less uh, than non-Black populations, as you can see on this slide, it was sufficient to till, still prevent HIV and still show that, that incredible efficacy result. 
Finally, uh, what we know so far about transgender women, and this is also a sub-study from HPTNOA3, we saw that in trans women who were taking gender-affirming hormone therapy, there was no difference in cabotegravir concentrations over time. We have not yet seen the reverse in looking at hormone uh, concentrations over time with injectable cabotegravir, but we really have no reason uh, to expect those results. And then finally, global access. When we think about um, when we think about uh, getting the drug to who needs it, we really need to think about uh, uh, making it available across the world. And so, uh, injectable cabotegravir was approved by the U.S. in 2021. Uh, but you can see here that large parts of the globe it has not uh, even been uh, submitted uh, for approval as of yet. It's getting there. Uh, most of Europe, some important countries in in, in uh, South America as well as here in Africa and Australia have it now approved, but many, many places still do not have access to injectable cabotegravir. And so briefly, just some other clinical pearls, and I'm going to go really fast for the sake of time. So uh, similar to when we think about treatment, uh, we also need to think about side of injection uh, for prevention. So ventrogluteal is preferred, dorsal gluteal is allowed, but no other anatomical site is appropriate for injectable cabotegravir. For people with higher BMI, which we certainly see quite a bit, please use longer needles. You need to get that drug intramuscularly. There are some drug interactions to be aware of, although these are fairly unusual uh, medications to be co-administered in our PrEP clinics. But um, as always, the rifamycins and some of the anti-seizure medicines are important to watch out for. We do not see any interactions with hormonal contraceptions and none are anticipated with gender-forming hormones, although we need to get those data out. Uh, finally, missed injections, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but we really need to think about people who miss that two-monthly injection. Uh, the uh, package insert tells us that if one month, less than a month has elapsed, you can continue on with uh, your regular dosing schedule. It recommends if more than a month has elapsed that you need to reload the patient with that four weekly uh, injection. Uh, this is a little bit in contrast to what we did in the clinical trial, but it is what the uh, 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 package insert says. Finally, I think planning for those unplanned missed injections is probably more important. What are we going to do for those people that we lose for a month or two or even longer? How are we going to ensure that they're protected from HIV acquisition? And I think this is an outstanding and very challenging question to answer. So there's a lot we still don't know. Uh, we still don't know about people who inject drugs. I don't think anyone doubts that this wouldn't be a useful intervention in that population, but we still don't have the data. We need to learn more about time to prevention efficacy. We do have some non-hamium primate and PK data that suggests it's fairly quick with injections within a couple of days, uh, but we need to know more about that. Managing seroconversions, and I think Dr. Aram will touch on this a little bit later, that is such an important thing to understand better. The PK tail so far looks reassuring, but it still certainly is a risk for NC resistance. And so we need to see on, on broad scale rollout what happens metabolic outcomes, and then feasibility of viral load monitoring. How are we going to make this happen for the people who need it most? And that includes across the globe uh, and worldwide access of CAVLA. So I will stop there. These are references uh, for your use. Uh, and, and thank you and take any questions uh, at this time. Thanks so much, Colleen. That was an amazing tour de force um, presentation. We've got lots of questions for you. Uh -oh. um, so <laughs> so let, let's start out. You know, you were very clear um, about dorsogluteal and ventrogluteal 
um, administration being the only acceptable um, uh, locations for injection. What are your thoughts on anterior thigh injections? Because there's some people who just can't get it in the gluteal region, period. We have some data in the treatment space about that. What do you do? Yeah, uh, at this point in time, we're not using it in outside of the ventral gluteal dorsal gluteal space. I'm not sure if you uh, have any different opinions on that, Rafi, but uh, it's it's we're not doing it. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. It seems like the PK is okay, at least in the treatment space, but it was not well tolerated, right? I think 70% of people um, actually preferred the gluteal space in terms of injection site tolerability, so mm -hmm. we're not doing it. Um, yeah. Great. So, Colleen, when you have somebody who's doing well on oral tenofovir-based prep in your clinic, and they say, hey, um, should I try this injectable thing? I'm doing fine, but you know, it might be nice not to have to remember, but I'm doing fine. What do you say to people um, about cabotegravir in that setting? Yeah, I think it's almost exactly the same conversation that Adia outlined uh, in the last session. It is a very, um, uh, you know, individual selection for those people that are willing and, and to come back to the clinic that, you know, they really would prefer to come see us every two months and get that injection versus actually put pill in mouth every day. Um, you know, I think there's, you see very divergent things. Some people are just thrilled to be on injections and not have to take, remember to take something every single day and coming to clinic every two months is no big deal. Where others are, you know, just think that the the clinic visits are such a burden on their schedule that they're just fine with that oral pill. So again, it's it's an individual discussion. I mean, I mean, I think where I see use of of cabotegravir and even on demand prep is offering people another option when oral prep is not working for them. That's where I see it to be really most important. It's like, okay, oral prep is not good for you. Taking something every day is not working for you. Let's talk about injections. Let's talk about on-demand prep. Give them something else to be able to use to keep them HIV negative. Love that approach. So we have a question from the audience. How long, you know, if you have um, a positive result on your HIV screening and somebody on cabotegravir prep, what interval do you wait before retesting? I don't, <laughs> as soon as they can turn around and come back to the clinic. Um, so which uh, no interval, uh, which in reality usually ends up being a few days to a week. If um, you know, cause usually it's that viral load that will pop positive first. Um, and then, you know, if, if you get, if you get it, if that takes a day or two to get back and then you're contacting the patient and takes them a day or two to get back. So it ends up being a few days, but I don't wait. I test immediately right away and I order every test I possibly can. That's a little bit of a joke, but you know, I'm mindful of, of choosing which tests are important, but I order every diagnostic test that is available to me at that, at my institution. And that's what I would recommend because you need all of the data. You need all of that data in context of a very detailed a behavioral history, STI history, other uh, concomitant infections or new medications that people have, have tested. You need all of that data available and in front of you as you try to sort through this very, very difficult situation. No, perfect, perfect. Thank you. Um, so Colleen, you know, you talked about this issue of resistance during the tail that we haven't seen it in the clinical trials. So there was this strategy um, taken in the clinical trials of using a tenofovir-based prep regimen to cover the tail. Are you doing that in clinical practice? Well, because, and I think even the, the trials showed us people don't take the 
oral tenofovir for the tail. If they want to stop prep, they want to stop prep. They're not necessarily caring about um, switching to a daily oral regimen. And so I think even if it's recommended, if it's actually happening is the question. And I think it's unusual for that actually to happen where someone says, okay, I'll take a pill every day for a year, just in case. In general, I think it's people that either are disappearing from you because of any number of things that are going on in their lives, or it's people that say, I'm not at risk anymore. I don't want to take, I don't want to be on prep anymore. So I'm just going to stop. And then they don't take the daily prep. I would still offer those people to one, one prep though. Um, in the, in the event that there is risk, um, that they're not anticipating for the future. So I would make sure they have something on hand to cover those or, or NPEP for that matter. Great. Great. Um, how do you bridge people who are late for injections? Do you give them a supply of oral prep to keep at home, or how do what? How are you handling those delayed injection situations? We're learning. Uh, we've been, and I'm in the southeast. I'm in Atlanta. We've been extremely late adopters of injectable prep outside of the clinical trial setting, and so that uh, is something that we're learning. Again, we. Um, you know, I, I've been curious in asking my colleagues around about how other people are managing that. Are they having trouble with insurance approving, having injectable and oral on hand? Because that, that would be ideal, right? That they have some oral on hand for a missed injection. But I don't know that everyone's going to have a payer source for two forms of, of PrEP. Um, so I think that is a really, really difficult question to answer. And I'm, I'm not sure what the right answer is. And I, I would love to hear how others are also managing that. No, thanks, Colleen. I think it's really, really challenging, right? Um, I think the recommendations in the package insert are very difficult to actually implement, right? I mean, they, they include, rec you know, have, have people have a supply of oral cab at yeah. home, which really is completely <laughs> impractical. But yeah, um, yeah. I, uh, yeah, it's very hard. And, uh, you know, uh, I've not been able to successfully bridge anyone. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> Colleen, we're, we're, oh, sorry, Sue, go ahead. You were just going to say what I was going to say, so I'll let you say it. Oh, okay. Out of time. Colleen, thank you for a great discussion and for taking so many of our questions. We have to move on, but um, we'll try and answer people's questions um, in the Q&A that we weren't able to get to. But Colleen, thank you so much for that really thorough and thoughtful conversation. We so appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye.